Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We will close our service out with a parent dedication. Before we get there, we have the really the final segment in Mark's Gospel. We've titled this series that takes us through Mark 14, Characters of the, of the Cross. Chapter 14 and following is the climax and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll have to, to, to tell you, approaching these passages, even in the study, coming up to, to this, I've been, I've been anticipating um, seeing it. I've been anticipating being reminded again uh, of the of not just the story, but the reality that, that has transformed my life. And the reality that's transformed your life if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you can't speak enough of, of Him or your Savior. And this is what we've been waiting for. This is what the Lord came for. And this is what the disciples have, have been prepared to expect. There, there has never been, even though we find them dull at times, there's never been a kingdom without a cross. Isaiah 53 is in the other testament, the Old Testament. It's not something that, that, that came about whenever Jesus, uh, came on the scene. There were three specific times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, be arrested, be mistreated, be, be handed over, be killed, and then he would rise from the dead on the third day. It was in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And we saw that, that, that moment at Caesarea Philippi, where he takes them to that pagan city, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he gives the messianic mission. It's not to usher in the kingdom right now, a physical kingdom, that's coming. It's to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and then rise from the dead. And he does that because the crucifixion and the triumph of the Son of God, the Son of Man, is why He came. It's the, it's the point of the entire Bible. What you do with Christ's crucifixion, how you understand it, what you believe about it, is, is the difference between heaven and hell. It's that serious. It's the absolute dividing line in theology. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified. That's... That's what he's saying. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the power of God and He's the wisdom of God. He is the one, He's the, He, His coming and His death, His work is, has the power to, to transform us from, from dead sinners to living saints. And it's the wisdom of God, the way of grace by faith alone is what God uses to make the world look foolish. And having embraced that, that's why you're here this morning. You long to learn more about the power and the wisdom that is in the cross. Now, chapter 14 and on, I don't think I covered this last time, but what we're going to be seeing, three segments. There's three segments in the final stretch of the book of Mark. There's, there's the preparation, that's, that's chapter 14. We're looking at all these different characters that are in the preparation part that leads up. The second part is the actual cross. That goes from the, from the arrest. So the preparation goes up through the garden. We're going we're gonna to see the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, and then him going to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And at the end of the garden, you move into the second part, which is the arrest, the betrayal and the arrest. And then it goes all the way through the crucifixion. And the third part is the triumph of, of Christ. And that's from his, from his burial to his appearance after the resurrection. So chapter 14 is the preparation in general. Chapter 15 is the cross. And chapter 16 is the, is the resurrection and the after effects. And we're in the preparation section that sets everything up. And what Mark begins with is by showing us all the human characters that play a part in preparing for that cross. Now, the main character in the Bible is God, but there are five other individuals that play a role. And we're obviously not looking at all of these at once, but this is kind of our rudder. It's our guideline as we, as we maneuver through this, this chapter 14. Last week, we saw the the plotting rulers, the rulers of the temple, and verses 1 and 2 plot against him. Today we're going to look at the woman who anoints him. And Jesus says she anoints him for his burial before he ever dies. So we started with Jesus' enemies, and now we move to his friends. And then we're going to come back to his enemies, and then we're going to go back to his friends. That's kind of how it goes throughout the chapter 14. The passage is probably very familiar to you. It's It's the one where a woman pours out fragrant oil on Jesus as an act of worship, as an act of honor to Him. And then Jesus says that it's to reinforce the cross. He's always about the cross. The message is always about the cross. She did it in worship. He says she anointed His body for His death. Now here's a passage if you want to highlight sacrificial giving instead of the widow from chapter 12. If I was going to pick a passage to preach about sacrificial giving, it wouldn't be the widow, it would be here. Because the temple system, as we saw, took the the widow's last meal. But here, Mary, in this passage, freely gives her most precious possession as an act of worship. The temple system was set up to to promote self-righteous works, and, and Mary is focused on on worship of, of Christ. It was extreme, and yet it was unreserved, and it was sacrificial. I think probably the most important thing I could say to you, though, to set this passage up is is this passage is not in chronological order. Look, if you would, at Mark 14, verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. So we get the the... The, when the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to seize Jesus, when they start plotting, it's two days before Passover, and verse 3 is six days before, um, before the Passover. It's not in chronological order. This, this event happens on Saturday before the triumphal entry. Now, why does Mark do that? He does it for thematic purposes. Not everything is in chronological order. Mark is weaving together this narrative, preparing for the cross, and he puts this right after the, 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 the leaders. And I'll show you why, either at the end of this message or the next one. The event happened the Saturday before the triumphal entry. And Mark puts it here for thematic purposes because of what Jesus says. It's the anointing was to prepare his body before it happened. And it's placed here to highlight that while his enemies, out of, uh, out of hatred, 
were preparing for his death, God is also preparing for his death as well. With his unbridled worship of the woman. Because the focus of her worship is the preparation for his death. So his enemies are preparing to betray him. They're preparing for his death. God is also preparing for Christ's death. Through the worship of this woman, anointing his body. So the wheels of betrayal have been in motion for some time, but those wheels run on God's railroad track. Amen? Nothing takes the, world, uh, the Lord by, by surprise. There are three parts to this scene in verses 3 through, through 9. And we're looking at the adoring woman. And it begins with an extravagant act of, uh, of worship. It's an, an extravagant act of worship. It's in verse 3. That leads to a devious argument over worth. How much is it worth and whether it should have been given to the poor rather than what she did with it. And then that leads to a rebuke from Christ that's silenced by the Lord's prophetic announcement. Not just to the disciples that were there, but, but to the world. Look if you would at verse 3. Let's look at this extravagant act of worship from this woman. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So here, Mark sets up the, the scene. Scene here is an evening meal at a at a man's home, and that man is named Simon the leper. Now, obviously, he doesn't have leprosy now, or he wouldn't be with people. So he's been healed of his leprosy. We're not specifically told whether Jesus is the one that, that, that healed him, but, but I think that, that would be a logical conclusion, because he's the host, and he's the Lord's friend. We're also told that it happened in Bethany, which is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead in in Luke 11. And Bethany is on the back side of the Mount of Olives, and it's about two miles or so from Jerusalem. And so Jesus, whenever he goes into Jerusalem, he stops here. He typically stays in the homes of, of, of friends, of people that he knows, and he stays in this home, or the home of, of, or stays in this town, I should say, many times. He'll go into the temple, he'll come back on the Mount of Olives, and sometimes he stays there. Sometimes he makes the two-mile trek back to Bethany because it gives him ready access to Jerusalem and he has a place to sleep. This event, though, is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and also in John, which is how we find out when it took place. And we also find out who the woman is. John chapter 12, verse 1 says it took place Six days before the Passover. So verse 1, it's two days when they're plotting the betrayal before the Passover. And John says this took place six days before the Passover. So this is a flashback before the triumphal entry. This is Saturday before Jesus ever presents himself on the colt, according to Zechariah 9.9, before he ever rides in and they cry, Hosanna. This is, this is like a, a flashback to that time. And John tells us the woman is Mary, the sister of Martha, who actually pours this oil over his head. Now, there's another anointing that takes place of Jesus. And that's in Luke chapter 7. It's not the same one. 
you remember, is a very, very vivid. It's probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it reminds me of myself. Is a prostitute woman who comes to Christ in the middle of a luncheon with a Pharisee and she is so overwhelmed with her grief and with her sin and who Christ is that she pours the, the, the oil on his feet and washes his feet with her tears and then, and then sops it up with, with, with her hair. And it's the passage where Jesus rebukes the, the host, the, the Pharisee, who's also named Simon, and he talks about he who has been forgiven much loves much. And that's why I relate to it. If you do not realize what you have been forgiven of, if you don't realize, first of all, what you've done, you won't realize what you've been forgiven of. And if you don't realize what you've been forgiven of, then you're not going to love to the same capacity that somebody is who does grasp that. This is That happened in Galilee. This is happening in Bethany. That Mary, or that woman was a prostitute, this woman is named Mary, and she is the sister of Martha. But the similarity is they both pour oil on Jesus, and they both pour it from an alabaster vial. And both of those actions would have been normal. We have all kinds of customs that are different today. But anointing a guest with fragrant oil was a common expression of kindness. When someone came to your home in the, in the time of Christ, they, they didn't have any socks. They don't wear socks. They, they typically wear sandals. And so when they came to your home, they left their sandals at the door. And as a courtesy, you either, you either did this for them, a servant did this, or you provided water for them to wash the dirt from their feet. Because you can see here, Jesus is reclining at the table, which which means they're all sitting around and and they're kind of laying on their side. Their feet are exposed. They're not sitting up at a chair. And so you would have provided water for them to wash the dirt from their feet and you would have given them an opportunity to wash their hands and their face. And then you would have applied a drop of aromatic oil as an act of hospitality. Essential oils didn't start in our day, believe it or not. Mark, where are you at? The climate was hot. And it made them smell good. And it was an act of honor. And everyone else appreciated that they smelled good. Have you ever been on an airplane with a European who didn't believe in deodorant? There you go. You wish they had some alabaster vile oil. However, while that was normal, to wash the feet, to anoint with a drop of oil... Expression of kindness and courtesy and hospitality. What Mary does is so extraordinary, so over the top, it's really hard for us to express. It's hard for me to express. It's hard for you to just kind of parachute in the middle of this passage and grasp the scene. It says, while they were at the table, meaning that, that he has already had this courtesy washing, he's already in the house, he's already reclining, he's already eating, Mary comes to the Lord and spontaneously pours out a pound of nard, of spike nard, all over his head. And John 12 tells us that, that she puts it on his feet as well and then wipes them over and over with her hair, not, not having a towel. 
Now, a Roman pound, it's a pound of, of nard. Of, it's about 12 ounces. That's a tall Joe Beans or a tall Starbucks cup full of perfume or oil. It's about a Coke can. You can imagine how big that is. And she, in the middle of, of lunch or dinner, I should say, walks up and pours this over top of the Lord's, of the Lord's head. And Mark says here, it's pure, it's, it's pure nard in verse 2. It means it's undiluted. Now, you may not know this, but the, the difference between perfume and cologne is not that one is for a woman and one is for a man. It has to do with the content, how much fragrance is in them, how much oil. Cologne has about 2 to 4% oil and it lasts about two hours. And perfume is about 20 to 30% oil fragrance, and it lasts about eight hours. That's also why they cost different amounts. The same brand, this would cost way more than this one. It has to do with how much oil is in it, and therefore how long it's going to last. So you pay more for more oil and longer-lasting scent. Mark says this is 100% pure spikenard oil, meaning it's unmixed, it's undiluted. And the fragrance wouldn't have lasted for two hours or eight hours. It would have lasted for days. You can imagine what a Starbucks cup full, that that amount of that potent perfume oil, what, what that would have done to Jesus and what that would have smelled like in the middle of, a, of an enclosed room. That's why John says the fragrance filled the room. You can imagine what that's like. You pour a cup of oil over someone's head, it would have run all over them, it would have soaked their clothing, their beard, and, and then Mary applies some of it to his feet as well, and there's either so much she takes her hair and wipes it up and then puts it back on him, or, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing scene, it really is. The alabaster vial was likely a family heirloom passed from mother to daughter, and, and Mark says, she broke the vial. That doesn't mean that, that it was, that was sealed. It, it means that, you know, you would have had the vial and you would have taken it out just like you put it now. You, you mean, when you apply a drop of oil, you have a really small hole. So you can get one drop. You don't pour it out, on, you don't pour everything out on, on the guests that are coming. She breaks the top so she can pour all of it on the Lord. So it'll come out faster. Now, do you remember a previous luncheon where Mary, the same Mary, is also rebuked because of her worship? Do you remember when Mary and Martha had Jesus over and Martha is rushing around while Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus learning? And you remember Martha complaining? She grumbles to the Lord. You remember what Jesus said to her grumbling? Martha says, Lord, I'm... I'm I'm busting my chops over here and Mary's just sitting at your feet. You remember what Jesus says to her? Luke 10. I think I have it. Yeah. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Do you know who else is at this lunch? you know who else John says is at this lunch? John tells us a lot. 
John tells us when this takes place, who this is. John talks about the feet being anointed. But do you know who else John says is at this lunch? Lazarus is at this lunch. Judas is there too. But Lazarus is at this lunch. Mary just had an opportunity to anoint her brother's body well after he was dead. And now he's sitting at this very lunch eating with them. And the same Mary said to the Lord a few days earlier with her brother in the tomb, if you would have been here, he would not have died. She believed in the power of Jesus. If you would have been here, you'd have kept him from being able to die. And Jesus says to Martha, and no doubt in Mary's hearing, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then Mary was there when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rose. Now you put all of that context together whenever you approach this passage. After months of being in these dinners, on the road and sitting in the dinners, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being about the one thing, the necessary thing, choosing that, listening to His teaching, learning about the kingdom, learning about what must take place. And she knows that the Passover is approaching. It's the week, six days before the Passover. She knows He's about to go to Jerusalem. And she's sitting there listening to the Lord teach again with her raised brother in the midst, watching him eat. And she is overcome, overwhelmed with worship, and spontaneously she comes and breaks the container and pours it all out into worship, and then gets on her face and soaks it up, and with her hair, puts it on his feet. It stopped what was going on in the meal, didn't it? This uncalculated, unadulterated, without hypocrisy, Pure worship. Her worship is just like the oil, undiluted. It's an act of an overflowing heart. It's built up to this moment. She's sitting there thinking, about what, what, what can I give? What can I give? I, 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 I know He's God. I know He's the Messiah. But what, what can I give? And this is the only thing that she knows to do. And it's out of an overflowing heart, a full heart. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you had an overflowing heart? When was the last time you were so full of the Lord's teaching that while meditating on His goodness and who He is, that you didn't even think, you just poured out worship in service and sacrifice and praise to Him? When was the last time it wasn't calculated? Mary didn't do this out of obligation. There are times for that. Mary didn't do this out of duty, although duty is good. It was out of a full heart. And if you haven't had one of those for a while, you need to, you need to ask yourself where your focus has been. Or how long it's been that you sat at the feet of the Master. Because you see, overflowing worship that forgets about everyone and everything else comes from consistent listening to His voice. This is not some ecstatic experience. This is a slow burn of following Christ and listening to His words and knowing where He's at in the prophetic calendar and then giving Him whatever she could. She was uncalculated in what she gave 
in worship because she calculated his worth. And that's what you do. And his worth doesn't always make sense to others that have something else on the scale, does it? So there's this extreme act of worship that is breathtaking. It really is. And that leads to a devious argument over, over worth that ensues. Look, if you would, at verse 4. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. I mean, you can just imagine They're at lunch, everybody's sitting around, Jesus is teaching, they're talking. Mary comes, she stands, or she's somewhere in the room. She dumps 12 ounces of oil on Christ. The room is filled with this, with this, the scent that, that's just absolutely overwhelming. And then they process what's happening, and then they begin this, this discussion. The word for rebuking is very strong. they literally turned upon her in anger. They growled. That's the, the idea of the word. And they mentioned the poor. Now, they focus on the poor because it's Passover. They know what time it is as well. But they don't understand it like Mary does. It's Passover. We come to Passover, and during the Passover, pilgrims would give to the poor. It was like, it's what you do during Christmas time. You make sure you, you, you take something off the angel tree. When you come to Passover, you make sure that you take care of the you take care of the poor. It was typical to give offerings to the poor during the feast. And that's what's on their mind. But John tells us where this originates. And then others, the rest of the disciples, or some of the disciples, pile in. John tells us where the scolding originates. It's with Judas. So he was there along with Lazarus. And the others join in. Charles Spurgeon, in his, in his Spurgeon-esque way, says he's forever grateful to Judas for one thing. The mathematics of this verse. We would have never known how much Mary poured out in worship if it were not for his concerned accounting. 300 denarii is a very large sum of money. And Judas knew exactly what it was worth. And John says why Judas knew what it was worth. He wanted to make sure that it ended up in the box because he had his hand in the till. It's a year's salary. Now, can you imagine giving one year's salary to the church in a single check? I mean, all of it. I can remember years ago having a paycheck in my pocket on a Sunday night and considering the Lord and and signing it over and putting it in the plate. But I also knew in two weeks there was another one coming. Obviously, this is not the woman's this is not the woman's livelihood. This is an heirloom. This is this is something very precious that was passed on to her more than likely. But John specifically tells us that while they mentioned the poor, it had nothing to do with that for Judas. Judas gets angry because he was, was he was greedy and pilfered the bag. That's what John chapter 12 verse 6 says. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. The lavish gift exposed Judas. You can be exposed by what you don't give in worship, 
And you can be exposed by what others do give in worship, right? Judas was greedy. And he was typically able to keep that under wraps. He's concerned. He's the money keeper. He's going to make sure that everything is is in line and in order. And in reality, he's got his hand in in the box. And he's normally able to keep that under wraps. But when such a lavish gift slips away... He couldn't cover his disdain. It's, it's like watching a year's salary being poured out on the ground, and when he saw it, he couldn't contain himself, and yet he tried to disguise it in religious garb. Oh, the poor! I mean, that, that's really what I'm concerned about. Listen. People do outright evil things. And some do evil things and try to mask them in religion, even in service to God. Some people pretend to care for righteous things, but they have very unrighteous motives. And one of the ways that you can smoke that out in your own heart is to bring it back to devotion to Christ. What's the real reason? Ask yourself, what's the real reason that you do what you do? If you strip away all of the activities, take away all the good deeds, do you find genuine devotion to Christ? If you take away all the instruments and the PowerPoints, do you, do you still sing of your Redeemer? If people give you no credit, and they even say evil things against you as you serve, while you're pouring out your life at the core of your heart, do you still say that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering? Is, is that really what drives you? Or is there something else? If it is and you don't know it, God will be very gracious to you and may provide an opportunity where it's exposed, it's revealed. It's not Him being unkind. This is not God being unkind to Judas or the disciples. It's, it's God being very kind. And God using the, the unadulterated worship of a woman to expose Him and to expose them. And Mary didn't care about anyone or anything but but the Lord. And she's she's praising Him for it. And that's number three. The devious argument over worth. And then there is a prophetic announcement to the world. I mean, I, I could just stop and give an invitation right now, couldn't I? I mean, I could have done that to my own heart after the first verse. But it's just, it's just on and on and on. Verse 6, Jesus responds and He says three things. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. The first thing that Jesus says is He commands them to leave her alone, to let her alone. You see that in verse 6? 
let her alone. Why do you bother her? It's, it's an imperative. It's, it's a command. He says, stop, leave her alone. He says, you should be more like her. Don't rebuke her. And just like Judas couldn't restrain his mouth out of greed, this woman couldn't restrain her heart out of worship. And Jesus says, let her alone. Mary is a rebuke to the group, and Jesus shows why. And it's confusing to some. Look at his reasoning for the command. Let her alone. First thing he says, let her alone. She has done excellent to me. She's done a good deed to me. While he's sitting there dripping with this fragrant oil. He says in verse 7, he explains it, For you always have the poor with you, but whenever you wish, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Now this perplexes people. What does this mean? Does this mean Jesus doesn't care about the poor? Is he, is he exalting himself over, over poor people? What's well, a reference from Deuteronomy 15? It's, you will always have the poor. You will, you always have the poor around. Don't ever buy into the social justice, feed the hungry idea that that's the gospel. Do that. It's part of the church's responsibility to care for the least of these, especially the brethren, especially the household of faith. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not digging wells. The gospel is the crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you will believe that and repent of your sins, you can go to heaven. That's, that's the gospel. Now, those who have, who have been changed by the gospel want to dig wells and want to feed the poor and want to do good things. And they want to do it for the right reasons. But that's not the gospel. This is a reference to always having the poor around in Deuteronomy 15. You're never going to eradicate poverty. What's the Lord saying? That the poor don't matter? No. Look at what He says. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you don't always have me. The basis of their argument was what? This could have been given to the poor. It's a valuable resource. They don't say that the perfume should have been kept. They said it could have achieved a much greater purpose than what Mary used it for. So the purpose was being sold for the, for the poor instead of being poured over Jesus. It, he's not saying concern for the poor is bad. He's saying care for the poor is what makes her act an even greater rebuke to them. The fact that the poor are there and they should be cared for makes her rebuke to you all that, that, that much more stinging. It's a, it must have been quite an exceptional cause that would justify such a lavish expenditure, preferring Christ to the benefit of so many. That's what he means. See what he's saying? Caring for the poor is a priority, but the ultimate priority is the worship of Jesus Christ. He's rebuking their lack of perception. Their lack of priority. The object of Mary's adoration must have been exceptionally worthy if it was the better choice than caring for so many poor with a year's worth of salary. That's what he's saying. And you will always have the poor to do good. If you're really concerned about the poor, great, do good to the poor, but you're only going to have me for a period of time. It was their lack of insight that Jesus corrects. 
This is very similar to what Jesus says to, to the other lunch. Mary and Martha, the former, the former lunch. You remember, he tells Martha, Mary has chosen a better thing, and it's not going to be taken away from her. He's not saying that, that Martha's wrong to get the house ready. He's not saying Martha's wrong to be concerned about hospitality. His focus is priority and opportunity. Mary had the right priority. It wasn't that what Martha was doing was bad. It was out of order. She'd prepared enough, and now the Lord was there, and now it was time to listen to the Lord. The poor are important, but now you have the Lord before you, and this act of extravagant worship would not be rebuked. It was about priority and opportunity. And there's an opportunity in front of Mary to worship the living God, and she chooses to do that now because that opportunity will soon be gone. That's what he means by you will always have the poor with you. He says you have another opportunity to care for the poor, but you won't have another opportunity to anoint me for burial. It's about priority and opportunity. Priority and opportunity. Over and over in my life and in your life, you're going to have to make choices. You made choices this morning. You made choices about what you put on to come to church. You might have made multiple choices about what you put on to come to church. And the hard choice is not going to be between good and bad. It's going to be between, as they say, good and best. There might be things in your life that you're doing that are not bad, but if, if there's anything, if you use any of those things that are good as your excuse for neglecting the worship of Jesus Christ, you fall in the category of Martha and possibly Judas. You want specific application? You don't have the opportunity to sit under the preaching of the Word of God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You don't even have the opportunity to sit under the preaching of the Word of God all day Sunday. You only have that opportunity for two hours. God's given you the opportunity for about two hours on Sunday of the entire week. And that must be your priority because that's your opportunity. And choosing anything else on a regular basis is lesser. Adoring worship of Christ is the ultimate priority. There's nothing higher. This is a lesson about priority and about opportunity. And where is Christ in your priority? Well, I'll tell you where it's at in Mary's because you can see that in the worship, right? And you can see that in the worth that she ascribes to Him. And you can also see that in the choices that Judas is making and the choices that the disciples are making in following. And there's one final thing that he says. This is, I mean, this is just unbelievable. Verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of her in memory. Do you realize that Jesus prophetically declares His death, burial, and resurrection in this response? Do you see that? What it says about Jesus is that He knows very well that He's going to die because He says this is an anointing for His burial. And He also knows very well Jesus' intent to betray Him and so 
the comment about the poor is to expose that fact. And what a picture is given here. The anointing for my anointing of my body beforehand for burial. Now, the dead were covered with perfume to mask the reality and the stench of death. And Christ is now covered with perfume while He's living to highlight the reality of His life and to proclaim the resurrection. One was an act of necessity and the other is an act of worship. Not only that, not only that, this is Saturday before the Passion Week. And so the perfume being undiluted would have lasted for several days and Jesus would have still had the smell of smikernard on him when he went to the triumphal entry the next day. Now think about that. In light of what Jesus says here, being anointed for his burial, he enters Jerusalem as the Messiah, riding on the colt in fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy as the coming king, and he's, he's smelling of death. <laughs> anointed already for the cross as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And this is a week before the cross. And God's shouting from the rooftop at every term the Messiah's mission, he's come to die. And not only that, he's come to rise. What does verse 9 say? Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached. What does that imply? When's the gospel preached? It's preached after the resurrection. Jesus says when the gospel is preached, not if it's preached. When the gospel is preached, it means it will be preached and that includes the resurrection. There's no good news without triumph over death. And he says the gospel will be preached in the whole world. And this woman will be remembered. You have a victorious gospel and you have a conquering gospel. I will rise. It will be preached. She will be honored for her worship. And that's exactly what we're doing today, right? <laughs> we're preaching the gospel focused on Jesus Christ. And we're honoring this woman that poured out a year's worth of salary in undiluted worship to the Lord. How glorious. That's why no amount of worship is too much to pour out on Him. It's why compared to any other priority, and when you're choosing between opportunities, Christ should always be chosen. So now's the time for the invitation. When was the last time you regarded Jesus like Mary? I don't mean making an outward show. I mean when nothing else matters. When was the last time you got lost in His infinite worth and you poured out your life and you didn't care what it cost you? And you poured out your life as a sweet sacrifice to the One who died and rose for you. Those who do that won't be remembered in the Gospel of Mark but they'll get the honor in the kingdom, in the glory. When you're around the throne, and He's in the center, and you'll be able to cast your crowns back at His feet and say, Worthy are You, Lord. It wasn't me. Whatever worship I gave, You gave me to begin with. You gave me life and breath and all things. Here it is. It was glory and honor to You. Your choices and your priorities or where this is won or lost. It's not a one-time event. It's a slow burn. 
And when given out the opportunity, do you choose Christ, His Word or something else, His church or somewhere else? I mean, that's really where it meets the road. And if you do that consistently, day after day, failing and getting up and repenting and doing it again, and day after day, the next thing you know, as the rubber has met the road day after day, you're going to find you're going to be really far down the road in sanctification. You're going to look back and you're going to say, wow, look how far I've come. And then you're also going to say, look how far I have yet to go, right? (laughs) Let's pray.